Um, here's my invitation to us this morning, is that this text is only going to make as much sense as it needs to for us if we go to the shores of Galilee. And so let's just, in our minds, head there. Can you, can you smell Galveston? That's what you need to smell right now. Okay? You need, you need, to, you need to see the, the, just the reality of what they're in. They're offshore, really, in a lake. But can you hear the seagulls? Can you smell a sea? Can you smell the fish? Can you, can you get into a boat with seven men that probably haven't bathed in a while? Not pretty. Don't want to picture that. Maybe that's part of the Sea of Galilee we're going to just leave out of our story. But can you come with me in this story? Because that's the only way this is going to make much sense today is if we will join the disciples on the shore of Galilee into the boat and then back to shore with Jesus. If you've been with us for any length of time, you know that we've been in the book of John forever. And we now are in our last two sermons of the book of John. It's during this Eastertide season that we're really calling alive because Jesus is alive. It wasn't just a day that we say he is risen. It is a lifetime that we live with the risen Savior. And so as we're walking with him, we're being invited to ask this same simple question that the disciples have been asking. They've really not been saying this, but it's the only question that we can kind of make sense of what all their reaction is. And it's this Question, how do you react when God doesn't live up to your expectations? What do you do when he disappoints you? The women went and saw the empty tomb, and they go and tell the disciples, and what did the disciples do? They didn't believe them. They, they, they ran to the tomb to see for themselves. When Jesus uh, appears to the disciples without Thomas, what was Thomas's reaction? He at least doubted, maybe even more than that, Jesus says he disbelieved. When he appears to those that are on the road to Emmaus, they're disoriented, they can't figure out who he is. It's only at dinner time that they finally see it's Jesus. And then what do they do? They go run and tell the disciples. It's this natural order of things. Jesus is doing things that they do not expect. They're disoriented, they don't believe, Maybe they drift. See, that's what we're entering into uh, here on the Sea of Galilee on this day. And so I would just ask us to enter into the story a bit. Because when God doesn't live up to our expectations, we do the same thing, don't we? Don't we get disappointed? Don't we at the very least get disoriented? But fear not. The same message that Jesus says along the way, peace be with you. There is a better thing coming. God is doing something greater than that which we expected. Don't disbelieve, but believe. Just as Jesus said to Thomas, so I say to you. So today's te text lends itself to that very familiar question. What do we do when God is delayed? Not only does he do things that we don't expect, but what happens when he is delayed? He hasn't let you down per se, but when told to wait for him, and we have all been told to wait for him, we're all waiting, what do we do? We get bored? How about you? You bored in your Christian life? I think that's probably an epidemic in American Christianity. We're just bored. We're bored with Jesus. He doesn't answer our prayers quick enough, fast enough, with richness. We're just bored. 
I think that's part of what's happening in our text today. Because then what Peter does, he goes back to what he knows. When the provision from God doesn't come soon enough, are you and I tempted to take matters into our own hands? I think that's a great question for us. See, most of us, I think, take a deep breath, pray something like this under our breath, Lord, bless my efforts. And then you run headlong into a direction, all the while hoping that the, the Lord's winds are behind you instead of a headwind. Today will show us there is a much better way. Today will show us that Jesus provides more, more than we could ask, more than we can imagine. That's what Ephesians 3 talks about. He provides more. Whatever we could come up with, he's going to provide more. So let's get into this context here, right? We're in this last part of the book of John. Jesus is risen from the dead. The Bible said we just wrapped up with, he said this is now the third time that he has appealed to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. He goes back to his disciples. He, at some point in this journey, we don't know the timeline, but at some point in this journey, he tells his disciples, they were in Jerusalem, and he tells them to go to Galilee where he's going to meet them. So they make the four-day, 70-mile trek up north, which is not unlike Houston terrain, but unlike, I don't know, hill country terrain. It's up and down. It's not an easy walk. It takes them about four days, 70 miles. Can you imagine what their conversation was like? You think he's going to, what's he going to do? Wonder why he's delayed. What's he up to right now? What are we doing right now? I don't know, just follow Peter. But why Galilee? This was the place where these guys grew up. See, the Bible is pretty uh, clear if we would just pay attention to it. See, these guys, look at me, look with me to verse 2. Simon Peter, where was he when he was found by Jesus? He was on the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias, fishing. That's where he was. And so they're headed back to Galilee where all these guys grew up. Thomas, we don't know where he was from, but Nathaniel, he's from Cana in Galilee. The sons of Zebedee were from the same area. Two of the other disciples we know, one of them is John. Could the other one have been Philip, who was also from the area? Bethsaida? We don't know. But we do know is that God is connecting some dots for these guys and he's inviting them back home where they made a living for years most of them as fishermen. Most of them on this sea doing this very same thing that we find today. Now I will tell you that this passage does not come without controversy, so let me just unpack the two views of how this passage looks uh, to, according to most people. View number one is that, G, uh, that, that Peter is disobedient, just completely disobedient, and he just basically says, when he says, I'm going to fish, he's basically saying, I'm done waiting on Jesus, I'm out. I'm going back to my old life, providing for myself, and that's, that's that. And we can pick up on that, and most people would say that because of this idea of night. Um, if you read with me, I'm just going to read verses 1 through 3. Jessica just read them. I'm going to read them again. Look, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. This is the Sea of Galilee. He revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, who's called the twin, Nathaniel, Cana of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two others of the disciples were, with, were together. Now Simon Peter said to them, I'm out. I'm going fishing. And they said to him, cool, well, we're going with you. About time, you asked. Been waiting. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night 
They caught nothing. Now, if you're reading this with more eyes that are saying that Peter is disobedient, you're reading that night word, and you're, you're constantly looking back at the book of John and going, okay, he's used this word night to help us understand something spiritually dark is happening. You saw this with Nicodemus when Nicodemus approaches Jesus at night. You see this with Judas. When Judas steps on the scene and Satan had so filled his heart to betray the Son of Man in John 13, and, and John would say this, and it was night. Total legitimate way to see this passage that Peter is being disobedient and he's just done waiting. The other way to see this is maybe not to see Peter in such a harsh light and instead to see Peter as simply drifting. After all, dude's got to eat. He's going to use his practical skills, his fisherman skills. He's going to bring his, his family with him, his guys with him, and they're going to go do what they know to do. They're waiting. He hadn't come yet. They're kind of not on their tiptoes waiting for Jesus anymore. They're going, okay, yeah, that, that like quick return that you were promising. You know what? I, I, I got to eat, man. So whether you see this, though, as disobedience or simple drift, the point is the same. Though we may be tempted to go back to our old ways of provision, finding ways to provide for ourselves, the way forward with Jesus is different than what got us here. You see, what got us through the dawn of our lives, the first, say, 35, 40 years, is going to be different than the evening of our lives. Whatever got you to this point, wherever you are, is going to be different going forward with Jesus. It's not just a practical idea, but it's certainly a spiritual one. So Peter goes fishing, right? I want you to just come with me to Galilee. So Peter goes fishing. He takes six others along with him. Again, because of the controversy, you can read this in one of two ways. If you read this as disobedient, the nighttime is really what uh, would give us that clue. He is then bringing others into his disobedience. But if he's just drifting, then the nighttime is just a practical understanding. But here's the bottom line. All night for hours, God did not provide for them. Jesus is risen from the dead, and they have all seen him to this point, and there is not a minnow on the line. Like, if you're a fisherman, this is going to bother you. If you fished at all, this is going to bother you because, like, surely at some point in the night, you're hungry, and you know Jesus is risen. Matter of fact, he's met you on these waters before. Where is the water-walking Jesus when we need him? Where's the Jesus who just provided for 5,000 with just a few fish? Where's the Jesus that met us on the dock that can help us? Where is he? Where is this resurrected power? Now, the disciples get skunked both by the sea and their Savior, right? There was no fish, and in them there was no peace. And then all of a sudden, after they fished all night long, if you've ever been on a really long fishing trip, this is the longest. I don't think any of us in here, maybe you have, you fished all night long. Maybe you have. If you have and you've not caught a thing at two in the morning, I'm looking at the captain and going, bro, let's just wrap this thing up. Let's go back. Let's get some sleep. They ain't, they're just not here today. We're in the wrong spot. And then all of a sudden, about 100 yards away, a stranger calls out from the shore. And you, you gotta think to yourself, if you're a disciple, when did he get there? 
I've been out on, the, on this thing all night long. There's not been a fire anywhere. Where, where did this fire come from? When did that guy get there? And what does he call out? Children. I'm sorry, what? I'm a fisherman. I'm a sailor. Children. See, if you're reading the NIV, it says friends. It's not friends. It's children. Children. This, this idea of children. Oh, man. What is Jesus up to? Let's read four and five. Look, night has gone through. They're getting skunked with their fishing trip. Verse five comes, just as day was breaking. Jesus doesn't show up in the night. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, and yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, you get anything yet? I can just see him. Can you see him? And they answered him. No, nah, man, we ain't got none. Children, this idea of children, one who is treasured. This is literally what the, diction, the Greek dictionary says about children. One who is treasured in a way that a parent treasures a child. If you're a parent in here, most of us are. Heaven help us. If we're a parent in here, we're, we know that treasure. We know looking at your children and treasuring them. We know that you can, they, can, they can do the worst things imaginable in your arms, and you're going to still look at them and be like, love you. I don't know how right now, but I still love you. No matter what they were doing on the sea, children, my treasures, got anything? See, even in our darkest night, whether we are bored, whether we are uh, belligerent against God, whether we are drifting or disobedience against Jesus, Jesus sees you as his treasure. Can you hear that this morning? Jesus sees you as his treasure, though you may see him as someone against that you might want to rebel. Jesus sees you as someone to treasure. Though you may not find Jesus' plan all that exciting, perhaps you are bored, since after all, it does involve a lot of things that you don't like, like patience and delay and dependence upon God for provision. Well, we don't like these things. These are not a part of our, our human nature. These are things that are born within us by the Spirit of God. And so if there's been a long time since we've heard from him, surely we're going to drift but may we hear the call of the stranger on the shore. Children, I'm ready to provide for you. Just wait and see what he does next. Let's keep reading. Let's keep thinking about this. See, like a dad to children, that's what Jesus says. And he asks them a question that they must have to answer humbly and honestly. Can you imagine being out there all night long? Have you ever fished offshore? You know kind of how rough it can be at times. You also know that you want to come back with a tale. You want to come back with a tale to tell of at least like somebody caught something and oh my gosh, it was awesome and then a seal grabbed it out of the boat. I mean, could you imagine that? I mean, that, that's the tale, right? We didn't come back with anything but just wiggled off the hook, man. Like hammerhead shark came and grabbed it. You know, this is what happened. What are you going to do? You want to come back with some sort of story. Did you get anything yet? No, we don't have that. See, you, I wonder if uh, we would be forced into some similar questions that when the Savior asks us something, would we be honest 
and humble enough to just simply say, I got nothing. I got nothing for my guys here. I got nothing for you, Jesus. And I wonder if when faced with our own failure, how easy it is to simply own up to our own shortcomings. I wonder if Jesus would have provided these fish if they weren't honest with him. I wonder if that provision that God has for us stored up is withheld because we're not honest with him. Yesterday I woke up, uh, we have softball tournaments, which is just, I mean, wow, that just never ends. But we're in the middle of this, uh, uh, a season right now for our family, and we woke up, and I told Ellie before we went to bed on Friday night, hey, put your clothes out Friday night so that when we wake up super early on Saturday, then you'll be ready to go. So she wakes up, she does her thing, and she comes down, and she goes, hey, um, do you tell me black pants or gray pants? And I was like, you know I told you gray pants? She's like, oh, okay, well, I can't find them. And I was like, you, this is, you're supposed to tell me this last night. You can't tell me right now. I got nothing. Like, so her room is still crazy town because we had to go through all the drawers and all of the closets. And what we found was no gray pants. We did find one at Academy on the way, which the Lord provided for her because there was one pair of larges and it was in the color that she needed. And I just said, Helly, you, you just, you better praise Jesus that he provided for you. We would have had a different day, right? But here's why I kind of got mad at that. Not kind of, I did get mad at that. A lot of different reasons why I was frustrated with that. But one of the main reasons is because on the way there, I was thinking why it frustrated me. Um, and I just thought to myself, man, I wanted to take her to Starbucks. I wanted to have a nice relaxing drive on the way there. I wanted to get her breakfast. I had so much more stored up for her than my frustration, and it was because she couldn't be honest about the night. She had done some other things with her clothes that I wasn't real happy about, saying that she'd hung them up, but in fact, they were stuffed into her closet. And so I just was like, man, like, I had more for you today stored up. But now I have, with, I have to withhold all that provision. And matter of fact, I have to take away privileges because of dishonesty and anything else. And I wonder if God is like that with us. I wonder if he withholds blessing and provision because we're just not, we're not true to him. We're not honest with him. And I'm not saying A plus B equals C, so don't hear me talking about formulas. If it's your first time here, I don't do that. I'm not saying be obedient so that God will give you something. That's the worst way to live. Be obedient because it honors Jesus. And he might give you stuff. You may not. Either way, you got him. But I do wonder if this is some sort of a test on this sea. But nonetheless, we don't have to wonder because they were honest and then God does some amazing things at the end of this, right? So the stranger on the shoreline instructs them to put the nets one last time. Verse six, if you ever wanted to know if Jesus was a Democrat or Republican, here you go. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat. That is a bad joke, but some of y'all laughed. By the way, the answer is neither. Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some fish. And so they cast it and now they were not even able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Anyone who has fish know that how easy it is when your buddy is, is killing it on one side of the dock, what do you do? You're getting skunked on this side of the dock and your buddy's killing it on that side of the dock, what do you do? You try and steal some of his fish, right? You're going to go get some. 
That's exactly what's happening here is that on one, one side of the, the, the boat, nothing's happening. On the other side of the boat, man, they get everything. Jesus knew exactly where the fish was. But if you can join me again on this boat, can you not see their faces? Can you not see them reluctantly answering this stranger on the seashore? Not only did he ask us a hard question and we had to say no, but now he's instructing us from the shoreline. Could you just imagine? Like what's the murmuring going on in the boat? I, I can Who's this guy telling us what to do? If he thinks it's so easy, why don't you come out here? Not that I would say something like that. <laughs> Reluctantly, they put down their nets, and all of a sudden, their haul is so great that they're barely able to bring it in, and all of a sudden, it clicks, right? It clicks for John. It clicks. Everything makes sense now. And he, he looks at Peter, and he says, it's Jesus out there. It's the Lord who's saying these things. I know it's him. And Peter looks at him. He's like, dude, I think you might be right. What clicks? What's the story that just made sense for them? If you go with me over to Luke 5, this is the story that's clicking on this sea, on the docks not so far away, perhaps where Jesus was not so far away from. It was three years earlier where Jesus said some things to these guys. Luke 5, 5. I didn't put these in my notes. Sorry, guys. Luke 5, 5. Look at what happens, right? Jesus calls out, and he tells the guys again to put the nets down one last time. He's preaching from Peter's boat. The crowds had swelled, and he looks over at Peter. He goes, hey, man, put down the nets, and you're going to get some fish. And, and, and uh, Simon Peter says to him, Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your words, we'll let down the nets. Now, this is pretty amazing stuff. This is one of the first miracles that would have won Peter and the rest of the guys over. But if we keep reading, we see Peter's first instance with grace, his first reaction of grace to what we're gonna find in the rest of our time in John. Look at his first reaction of grace in verse eight. Verse eight but when Simon Peter saw what had just happened, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, get away from me. I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Verse nine, I'm a sinful man, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And then 10, and so also were, oh my gosh, these guys, James and John, the guys that are the sons of Zebedee, right here in John 21 who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Disillusioned, disobedient, drifting. The promise now remains the same right back in John 21. He says, though you wanted to go back to fishing whatever, for whatever reason, the call remains the same. Follow me, follow me, follow me. I hope that you can see what Jesus is doing on this sea of Galilee on this night because I, here's what I know. Though it may be night, though it may be night in our souls, Jesus brings the light of the coming dawn. There is hope coming for us. The night that once captured Peter's heart was depending on his own performance to stand before the Savior. Away from me, I'm a sinner See, that was the night for Peter. 
This, this idea that it, it depends on us to stand before God, that it, that it depends on our performance or our goodness to stand in the presence of Messiah. And the light that has dawned on all of us who would believe is that it does not depend on our performance, but it does depend on Jesus' performance on our behalf. And so would we believe? One of us wants to push Jesus away in shame, and the other one does what Peter did. And what did he do? Just watch. It's the Lord, right? Verse 7, so the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, therefore said to Peter, it's Jesus out there. And when Simon Peter heard this, he left everybody else to do all the work. He put on his outer garment. He's stripped. Some people say he was naked. He's not naked. He's just taking out like his, his overalls and he's wrapping his overalls around like his waist because it's hot. So he then knows he's about to go swimming. So he pulls his overalls back on, zips that thing up and jumps in the water. There was no zipper, just come with me on that. <laughs> he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. Could you imagine this? So he does not depend on his own performance, but now he's no longer shunning Jesus, but jumping to go and be with him, even if it's just, he doesn't know if he's gonna beat the fish. He doesn't know if he's gonna beat the, the boat that has all the fish. He just wants to get there, even if it's moments, even if it's moments before the rest of the guys. I hope that you can see this hope in the coming dawn that your performance doesn't make you worthy or unworthy to be invited to, invited to follow Jesus. I just want you to see this if you can. Jesus is sitting on the seashore. He's now got a fire. He's got some fish that he already has and some bread that they don't have but he can't wait to share with them. And Peter, who's his idea to go fishing, and it's probably his boat, he now leaves the guys, swims to shore, gets there a little bit before them, goes over to Jesus. We don't know this is in the text, but goes over to Jesus, gives Jesus a big old wet hug, gets Jesus all wet, turns around, is like, oh, I forgot my guys. Hang on. Let me go and pull the net up. The, meanwhile, the guys are getting off the boat, and Peter's going, guys, you see this? Right here, it's Jesus. Who cares about this haul of provision that we have, 153 fish? It's Jesus right here. Let me get this. And all of a sudden, he looks over at his guys, and they're all off of the boat, and they're all just standing there on the seashore. And then that voice comes again. Guys, grab some of your fish. Come on, have breakfast. I got tacos for you. Come on, man. Come on, man, just have some breakfast with me. I just want you to sit down and rest and, and, and just commune with me. What a great promise from our Savior. See, what we cannot provide after hours of work, Jesus provides in mere moments. They toiled all night long for fish, and Jesus, at the sound of his voice, goes, right side, do it now, 153 fish. They have to haul them in. Of course it was more than enough. And you know what? Those disciples who were going to be providing for themselves through this fishing trip, they left that provision. They left all the promise of profit. They left all the busyness that comes with all that work. I mean, after all, Jesus provided all this. Shouldn't we be good stewards of it? They left all that because nothing is more important than sitting with Jesus being captured by his patience, by his goodness, by his mercy. So if you're a student in here, 
if you're going off to college or staying in college, there's nothing more important than sitting at the feet of Jesus. If you're a dad who needs to go off and work like crazy or a mom who stays home or maybe it's just all flip-flopped in your house, wherever you are, there is nothing more captivating, no matter how bored you think you've been, than sitting at the feet of Jesus where he is inviting you to remember some things. See, these disciples were on this sea and they were being skunked. You know, Jesus, in his mercy, will frustrate you to keep you from depending on old ways, including self-dependence, so as to show you a better way. Life on the vine. Life dependent upon Messiah. Life dependent upon God himself to give you everything that you need. Not to succeed, that's not the goal, but to be fruitful. Fruitful in our bearing of spiritual fruit, fruitful in the making of disciples, and fruitful. There's not a better fruit that we could bear than just being with Jesus. So what do we do in all this? What are some takeaways for us to consider today? I, don't, I didn't have three points today. Instead, I just wanted you to just be in the narrative. I wanted you to be on the boat. But I do want you to walk away from this excursion, so to speak, with some things to think about. No matter where you come, on, uh, come down on this whole controversial thing about whether, Jesus, whether Peter was being disobedient or whether he was just drifting, Peter does take six other disciples with him in his fishing trip. He does take six others with him, and his disobedience or drift was contagious. And I wonder if you considered how your disobedience or your obedience is affecting those around you. When you go out to fish, quote unquote, who are you bringing with you? Your family? Your kids? Your husband? Your wife? Your neighborhood group? People at work, first question to consider. The second thing is that on this night, the disciples weren't, again, just reminded of God's power to provide, but the lesson of the vine. So are you abiding in the vine? Is your branch connected to the vine so that the vine dresser can prune you, can tend to you, can create health in you? Is your life being worn down by unceasing effort See the disciples for hours on the sea. Is your life being worn down with unceasing effort but no fruit? Perhaps it's time to be, uh, to be who God wants you to be. Not a branch that white knuckles the vine trying to hold on, but a branch that remembers that they have no power to bear fruit on their own. But instead, abide, remain close. God will bear fruit. Because here's this great promise that comes from this night on the Sea of Galilee. However long you've been trying to do things on your own, Jesus waits patiently on the shore with provisions for you. Doesn't he do that with the disciples? Bring some of the fish that you've just caught in verse 10. So Simon Peter went aboard, hauled the net ashore, full of the large fish, 153 of them. Don't get caught up in the details of 153. It was a lot. Someone was there and counted, and that's what they wanted us to know. And although there were so many, the net was not 
torn. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was him. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. Jesus shared his provisions with them, even though they were in the dark, even though they were out on the sea all night. And he invites us to do the same. He's inviting you right now, no matter what your week just looked like, no matter what failures meet you tomorrow, or perhaps not even past lunch, in your own heart or in your hands, however it works out, he invites you to come close, to share a meal with him, Maybe it's not fish tacos for breakfast after a long night's work, but it is provisions from his word, provisions from his spirit who wants to comfort you and counsel you and to show you a better way. Remember that conversation? We have no idea what they said over breakfast and perhaps that's the most powerful thing about this passage. They didn't write that down for us. It frustrates me that they didn't do that, just to be really candid. I really wanna know what they talked about. It probably wasn't work. It's probably about how good Jesus is, how patient he is, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. So no matter if we are disobedient or drifting, the fact of the matter remains, God is coming back. Just like they were waiting for, him, for Jesus to meet them in Galilee, so now we wait for him to come to Richmond or Katy or Sugarland or Rosenberg, wherever it is that you live. We wait for his coming. So I ask you this final question. How are you waiting? Are you wandering or are you on the edge of your toes expectant? Has life bored you and lulled you into thinking, much like the disciples, just grind it out, get to the weekend so that you can finally do what you want. You can finally take the edge off with a strong drink or with something worse. You can finally get there. God has a better way. He invites you to feast on what he has prepared so that you can find rest and assurance in his presence. There is no substitute for that high, for the contentment that comes with the presence of God of Jesus. And so I ask you all, how are we waiting? I pray that we are doing so in wonder, not in wander. Will we wonder at his coming? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this beautiful passage, for this beautiful book, and for you yourself being good and beautiful to us. In your mercy, you may frustrate us. We need to come to grips with that. In your mercy, you may, you may not provide for us the, the natural things of this world so that we can then be spiritually prepared to come and find our rest in you. Would we follow you into that journey? Like the disciples who probably hadn't seen that many fish in years. Whatever you provide for us, whether it be a full bank account or a full garage or a full quiver of children, Lord, let us never forget that whatever you provide for us, it is not enough to satisfy us, for you provide more. Just as they left their hall and sat at the feet of the Savior, I pray that we would do the same thing. I pray that we would do the hardest thing imaginable for the American Christian, and that is to not put our hand to the plow every day, but to sit, to be still, 
and to know that you are God. May we work out of that dependence. May we, may we move as you move. May we not go ahead of you or may, not, may we not lag behind you. But may we find the pace of your Holy Spirit who's calling us to come and sit. But we're of no use if we just continue to sit as we'll see next week. Instead, we have a mission. A mission to invite others to that breakfast, to that meal, to the feast that you're going to set before us in, in the kingdom. We look forward to that. Let nothing else satisfy us. Though the earth may tempt us to find satisfaction in lesser things, may we find our satisfaction in you. And in so doing, Father, help us along the way. We love you and we're grateful in Christ's name. Amen.